Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. Gary Gensler says, all proof-of-stake tokens are securities. What does it mean for crypto if his view prevails? Plus, no crypto is reportedly a condition in a signature bank sale, and U.S. lawmakers are going through crypto protocols to see what's palatable to both parties. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. Today, I'm joined by Ram Aluwalia and Perianne Boring. Welcome back to the show both. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, guys, relentless news flow this week. But before we get to that, let's take a look at the latest price action. Starting with some macroeconomic news, we've just heard from the European Central Bank. The ECB has raised rates by another 50 basis points, one half of 1%, despite turmoil we've seen in the European banking sector. Looking at cryptocurrency prices, it's down across the market today. The total crypto market cap is down around 1% on CoinGecko. Bitcoin is down around 1% compared to this time yesterday. It's trading at just under $25,000. It's been a sterile, stellar week for Bitcoin though. It's up some 15% on a trailing seven-day basis. Looking at Ether, it's been doing worse than Bitcoin lately. Ether is down close to 3% over the past 24 hours. Ether's weekly gain of 8% is also much more modest than Bitcoins. This comes as Ethereum completed the Shanghai upgrade on the Gorley testnet, which is the final step before the mainnet upgrade. We're also keeping an eye on USDC. The second largest stablecoin has regained its peg to the US dollar. Circle, the company behind USDC, says it cleared, quote, substantially all of the backlog of minting and redemptions. Circle says it redeemed $3.8 billion worth of USDC and minted $800 million worth of USDC since Monday. Okay, viewers, join us in the conversation. Put down your questions in the chat wherever you're watching. We'll ask the best ones on air later in the show. Remember, Real Vision crypto members take priority, but the good news is, of course, Real Vision crypto is free. With that said, let's bring in our guest. Perianne Boring is the founder and CEO of the Chamber of Digital Commerce, a pro-crypto lobbying group in Washington. And Ram Aluwalia is the CEO of Lumida, a digital assets investment company. Ram, let's start with you. Give us your thoughts on where we are right now in this market. Well, there are a couple of layers uh, to what's happening in the market right now. Of course, you see the rally in Bitcoin, which I believe is driven by market expectations of uh, U.S. Fed policy, right? We saw market policy expectations were around 50 bips rate increase on March 23rd. Now markets are expecting between zero to 25 bips. Um, so that's one. Uh, second, of course, uh, you've seen increased regulatory uh, bank seizures. You know, we, I know there's a, a big population of crypto natives that want to go bankless. No one ever thought we'd be going bankless in this way with three banks uh, that are suspending operations or in receivership by the FDIC. Uh, and there are a lot of questions around what were the motivations behind uh, recent reporting uh, for signatures bank receivership as well as their suspension of crypto services. And I think the third uh, story that we should get into is the rotation of corporate treasures out of deposit accounts into money market funds and that the bind that that creates uh, for the Federal Reserve. Perianne, Ram just gave us the overview from a financial perspective. Where are we? What's the broader backdrop from the political context? Well, it's really been just an incredible uh, week for digital asset policy, but all eyes are on the banks. And you know, from our perspective at the Chamber of Digital Commerce, a, a lot of things that have happened in the banking sector are predictable. It really highlights how fragile the banking and monetary system is. And a lot of digital asset companies, crypto companies, but companies of all types across the United States, are. this is a wake-up call. Uh, of just how leveraged our financial system is. And a lot of our people are starting to um, understand the risk they have taken on if they have over $250,000 deposited in their bank. 
They are unsecured creditors to the bank. Uh, and a lot of people, a lot of companies just aren't comfortable with, with taking that risk. And, and frankly, they should not have to. I thought it was really interesting. Uh, Jeremy Allaire, the CEO of Circle, you mentioned USDC earlier. I think they really navigated through this quite well, uh, given the circumstances. Uh, but he said that the focus has been on how to protect banks from crypto. But in reality, it's how do we protect crypto from the banks uh, in these types of market failures. Uh, so there's a lot of political theater, but I think at the end of the day, policymakers should be looking to new and innovative technologies like blockchains and digital assets to bring more stability and transparency to the markets. And they should step away from this highly critical tone towards digital assets. Well, I definitely agree with you about stepping away from the critical tone uh, around digital assets and certainly also about the importance of innovation in the space. But let me just push back on uh, this idea uh, that banks are generally uh, unsafe or problematic uh, in terms of these uh, types of runs for two reasons, particularly for individuals. So number one, uh, we did see a backstop of the banking system here uh, by uh, the Fed, by the uh, FDIC and by Treasury. Uh, and second, it's it's very hard for most people to have more than $250,000 in deposits in a bank uh, in cash and demand deposit accounts, 500,000 for couples. Typically, uh, individuals have that uh, in a brokerage account uh, in US Treasury securities and in even certificates of deposit. Uh, so it's not exactly like a, a massive problem that people uh, run around with here in the United States thinking, oh my God, you know, my bank failed and, and I lost a huge amount of money. That's generally not something that happens. Uh, talk a little bit uh, about why you think that this is something, I, I get the case for businesses, right? The understanding uh, that it's really problematic or challenging. 250,000 is not a lot of working capital for a business to have in cash. Very often uh, that number uh, is easily exceeded by what their demands are. Uh, but talk a little bit about what you see the digital future here being uh, in terms of how the banking system can be both more accommodative for crypto uh, and more beneficial to individuals. Well, you know, one of the, the proposals on the table is a full reserve bank. Um, this is something that... But by the way, what does that mean for people who may not know? Right. So there are no full reserve banks in the United States today. Um, today, banks operate on what's called fractional reserves, meaning depositors deposit their money, the banks loan that out. Um, and all deposits are not necessarily there. They've been, they've been loaned out. This is one way inflation is created in our economy. A full reserve bank means for anyone who deposits... Uh, into a bank account, uh, the, the bank has to hold equal reserves. Um, so there, there have been a number of attempts to bring full reserve banks into the system, but regulators and policymakers have blocked all attempts uh, a number of decades. Um, this is a solution that a lot of crypto companies uh, would like to have. Uh, because it uh, it takes away that risk of if your deposits are over $250,000 being an unsecured creditor to the bank. Um, and also it ensures that your deposits are not being leveraged or rehypothecated. Uh, so that is one solution that we support at the Chamber of Digital Commerce. We would like to see full, re full reserve banks uh, come, come to market. Um, you know, How do full reserve banks make money if they're not able to lend out? What's the model? Uh, that you're seeing, or at least some of the potential models there? Uh, they can charge a fee to custody assets. They can charge fees for other services. Um, so, you know, the profitability of the business model looks very different than other mm. banks that we have today. But but there are other business models um, to, to be profitable in the banking sector. And policymakers should allow the banking system to have competitors. Uh, a, a healthy and a strong economy uh, requires many different options. This goes for yes. industries, not in banking. Uh, but unfortunately, in banking, there's very, very limited options. There's limited business uh, banking models today. Uh, so we should be looking for other business models. And then we should also be looking to modernize the technology we use in the banking sector. And blockchain needs to be a key part of that conversation. Yeah, that's very well said. Competition uh, and innovation are almost always good things. Uh, Ram, any thoughts, comments on what Perianne has just said? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting topic. So first off, your deposits are safe and sound. You know, to your point, Ash, on Sunday, the FDIC in coordination with other regulators cited systemic risk exception 
and made uninsured depositors whole. That said, there are issues and legitimate without without a ceiling, without a ceiling. Beyond that's correct. Meaning, that's correct. That. So your bank is safe. Doesn't mean that we can't do better. That's one. Second, there is a concept of a fully reserved product that pays out yield. There's no rehypothecation, and it's called a money market fund. Right? If you own a money market fund, a money market consists of custodied securities that are just about to mature. Those securities are investment grade bonds, treasuries, mortgage backed securities corporate debt, asset-backed securities, their custody, they're not rehypothecated. And that's actually the issue at work here. Because if you're a regional bank and you're paying two to 3% on interest, and let's say you introduce a money market account, then you can get a bank run at the very same bank by simply logging onto your online banking system and moving deposits to a money market fund. And the reason why is because deposits are a source of funding for the bank, meaning if you look at the bank's balance sheet, the asset side of the bank's balance sheet is funded by deposits, those are liabilities of the bank, as well as equity. When you change your deposit funding to a money market account, that is no longer a source of funding for the bank. It's a source of funding for the money market. The last piece, to Periat's point, I fully agree with, and I think we need more attention on this, which is we need more competition and the ability for private markets to innovate the, in the banking space, there's a reason why SVB is only being auctioned off to other banks. It's because of antiquated banking law going back to 1863. There's a reason why Amazon.com does not have a bank. And look, I'm all for concerns around our tech overlords and we need more competition. But I, I kind of want to see what Bezos Bank would do. Google can't buy a bank. Venture capitalist firms can't pass the header on and buy a bank. Those laws should change, and that would add capital, would add technology, would add innovation, and it would strengthen and revitalize the banking system. Uh, you also, you guys have mentioned, um, you know, your funds are safe at the bank. So I, I do think the steps made over the weekend, Sunday, by Treasury, by the Fed, um, to you know backstop losses at these banks. Uh, and the way that they're doing it is is going to stop the bleeding. So that, that's good. But at the end of the day, these are still um, inflationary policies. It's not a bailout. It's kind of like a, a, a bailout with a new creative name. But at the end of the day, we're still using the same monetary tools uh, to backstop these issues that we've been using for, for, for decades. Uh, what you know? What I'm saying is- Can, about, I, can I play devil's advocate there, Perianne? So these same monetary tools that we've been using for decades, fractional reserve banking, uh, traditional monetary policy, I mean, even accepting uh, if you don't like the post-2008 era monetary policy from the Fed, um, saw the United States rise to become the wealthiest and most powerful nation in the history of the world. Uh, it isn't as though fractional reserve banking uh, and traditional monetary policy from the Fed uh, was, uh, you know, a huge uh, headwind, economic headwind to the United States, you know, from the period of, say, uh, 1950 to 2008. This was a period of unprecedented growth, prosperity, and wealth. Uh, so when when you say that, I guess I, I sort of wonder, uh, is this really something uh, that needs to be ripped out root and branch? Uh, or is this something that you see as an opportunity for digital assets to continue to support, uh, enhance, and uh, continue to grow the vast economic prosperity that the United States specifically, uh, and among other developed nations as well, who use similar policies has developed? I just want to get your view on that. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that, that it is a good point, but just let's look at the fundamentals. At the end of the day, these are all inflationary policies. We are printing money out of thin air. And let's just be real clear and honest about what inflation is. It is it, it is theft, ultimately, from anybody that holds U.S. dollars. It, it is a uh, an indirect tax, and I argue that it's theft. And I, I don't think it is uh, an honest or um, even an ethical way to conduct policy, especially in the United States. So have we seen growth? Yes, uh, but we also have completely um, unsustainable levels of debt. And that's a big part of what got us in this issue. Well, uh, let me to push back with. again there, because is the problem inflation uh, or is the problem inflation that's you know running far, far beyond uh, the, the Fed target? Uh, obviously, when you have inflation above 5%, it's problematic. High inflation is crippling to economy. Uh, it absolutely decimates uh, the ability of individuals to meet their debts. Uh, it's crushing to small businesses. I mean, it's just a horrific, horrific thing. There's no disagreement there. Uh, but the idea uh, that when when inflation is running at uh, 2%, that it is 
uh, in essence, uh, nothing but theft is one that's at, at very least, I think, controversial uh, among most economists. The idea uh, that's low levels of inflation uh, during the, the great post a war boom here in the United States uh, were, were terribly problematic. It uh, doesn't really seem to be supported by the data with the exception of two very prominent periods, the one we're in now, uh, and of course the late 1970s. Uh, so, you know, the idea that, that developed market economies can't run with low levels of inflation to me just doesn't seem to be supported by data. I, I, there, there's also really no um, precedent in history um, for the, the moment that we are in. Yes. And let's let's you know be clear about what we're in right now. We are in a global fiat experiment. For thousands of years, civilizations used things of scarcity as money. In 1971, when Nixon severed the gold standard, by the 1980s, the rest of the world moved to fiat currencies. We've only been in this fiat system, this global fiat system for uh, less than a hundred years, and and how well is it really going? I mean, you have huge amounts of people who do not have access to the financial system at all. You right. have um, you know significant uh, gaps in terms of um, uh, you know the one percent versus everybody else. The, those right. financial gaps are only growing. You know, inflation is completely rampant. You have unsustainable levels of debt, not just in the United States, but globally. Globally, the debt to GDP ratio is over three hundred percent, which means we're spending more than three hundred percent than we are producing. At some point, there's going to be a reckoning moment, and I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. Well, you're definitely right uh, about the current moment and that we are in this unprecedented time uh, of unconventional monetary policy running for some 14 years uh, in the wake of the global financial crisis. I don't know. I wouldn't argue that it's been a bad hundred years for the United States, uh, not a bad hundred years for the general standard of living, uh, health, welfare, uh, pretty much every human development index uh, here in the Western world has increased dramatically uh, in the framework of contemporary capitalism with low levels of inflation. Ron, what are your thoughts on this? I think it's it's a really interesting uh, debate. Look, uh, yes, the last 14 years of quantitative easing and ultra low interest rates, as well as $2 trillion of COVID stimulus uh, have led to a set of issues that are very challenging for us to deal with in terms of policy and, and the Federal Reserve. And we're paying off the consequence of that now. No doubt about that. That's one. Two, credit creation and fractional reserve banking um, have enabled uh, small businesses to grow, farmers to get financing and a plow. Um, you know, if you want to look at a world without fractional reserve banking, like Cuba, it's, you, you can't get a loan. Everything's equity financed. I go to Greece every now and then to visit my sister. She's got a, a place there. You know, I'll tell you a nice little anecdote here. So I see this house and one summer he's, he's painting the walls on the outside of the house. Next summer I visit and he's rehab the interior go back again. Now there's like a water system. And I said, why are you doing this piece by piece? You just moved into this house and why don't you just do it all in one shot? And he said, the reason why is they don't have a mortgage finance market. And that same anecdote applies to business investment. If you're a farmer, small businesses and, and provide a productive value creation for society and a bank can underwrite that business bank and say, Hey, I know if you buy that plow with this kind of land, and I know the character and capacity and the credit worthiness of you as an individual that I can provide financing for you and you're going to be better off, the bank's better off, and the public is, is better off. So credit intermediation is an important concept. Uh, yes, it's run amok the last 14 years, I agree. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's some challenges we've got to deal with. Okay, some agreements, some challenges. I wanted to move on to talk about this question, uh, which is very germane to the conversation we're having right now, which is this. Uh, with whom will folks in the crypto world bank? According to sources speaking to Reuters, no crypto business is a condition being made to any potential buyers of Signature Bank. Uh, by the way, this does not yet appear to have been confirmed, but this is reporting from Reuters uh, that's breaking recently here uh, this morning. The U.S. crypto-friendly bank, uh, that was shut down by regulators over the weekend. Uh, of course, obviously, Signature Bank we're talking about. They publicly deny that they did so to send an anti-crypto message. Uh, they, in this case, being the regulators. Uh, what do you guys both make of this? Perianne, first to you. Well, I mean, obviously, they're going to deny that because it would be illegal and a huge gross overstep of their powers. Uh, but I don't think we should put it past them. And 
at the end of the day, where there's smoke, there is fire. We have seen rumors for several months now that the federal bank regulators have been putting pressure on the banks to not offer services to a completely legal industry of the digital asset space. This is the um, this operation. Is this is the operation choke point 2.0 hypothesis. The idea uh, that uh, that the administration is using essentially federal policy, federal regulatory policy uh, to basically enforce the likes and dislikes of the administration. That's the thesis, at least. Yeah, and kind of interesting background here. I, I previously worked on Capitol Hill when the original Operation Choke Point was underway, and uh, the congressman that I worked for was on the, the Committee on Oversight, and this was a key issue that, that we worked on. So there is precedent for this. Uh, across the bank the, the bank regulators. Uh, we've seen them target other industries. Uh, and and this is um, this is this needs to be held accountable. Um, I, I was very encouraged that we've seen a number of members of Congress who have who are bringing oversight to this issue. Uh, they are sending letters. they are, uh, looking to investigate what's happening at the FDIC and the OCC and the Fed regarding this. And that's what they should be doing. Uh, but I also you know, wonder if there's additional legal recourse that, that the industry can take in additional ways that the industry can advocate to preserve what they deserve in terms of access to, to the banking system. So this is incredibly disturbing to see. Uh, and Congress needs to investigate and provide oversight. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. I know it's early uh, and uh, you're suggesting that Congress should investigate to find out. Is there any evidence as of yet uh, that this is in fact, or was in fact in your view, a deliberate public policy attempt to shut down crypto? Well, we've seen statements from a board member of Signature and um, former Congressman uh, Barney Frank, who said that that, that it absolutely was. Um, we've also seen a number of people who said, you know, the complete opposite. Uh, the New York regulators made statements the other day saying that was not the case. They they were um, ultimately brought down because of their, you know, their financial issues. Um, so I, I think there's a lot more that needs to be uh, digged into. And I, I do think, you know, Congress and, you know, potentially this could go into the courts uh, to, to, you know, get the facts, get the bottom of it uh, and ensure that our regulators are operating within their statutory mandate. Well, the one thing that I think is certain is we're going to continue to get more news flow on this. Ram, any thoughts on this story? Oh, I got a lot of thoughts on this one. Quite a few. So. Uh, first off, look, it was a very big surprise to see Signature put into receivership last Friday. Even the hedge funds that were shorting Signature were surprised. This was not expected. That's one. Second, this is a key point that the industry is missing. The primary, the primary regulator for Signature is the New York State Department of Financial Services. It was the NYS DFS that put Signature into receivership, not the federal bank regulators. That's a key point, folks. So we're trying to figure out who's pro-crypto, who's not crypto, who's neutral. It was a New York State DFS. That's one. Second, Barney- and what, that, and what does that suggest to you, Rome? Well, it suggests to me that New York State DFS has a policy that is not hospitable to crypto. That's the conclusion to make here. That's number one. Now, there are a few more thoughts around this. Second, Senator Barney Frank was on the board of Signature. I think his comment was not speaking from a place of privileged insight information, the way he cast it. He was really describing it as an outside observer. I think his comment is really deflecting his own liability as a bank director. Bank directors are liable for uh, ensuring that the bank conducts compliance and operates within the confines of the law. So I wouldn't overread into that. He is just you know, casting an aspersion out there and, and trying to point the focus somewhere other than him. This is the guy that co-drafted Dodd-Frank, the most important set of banking regulation of the law. He sat on the board of a bank. That bank was seized. Uh, so that's what that's about. Let's not overread into this. That I fully agree with Perianne. We need congressional oversight. We need to have some hearings. I think Chair Patrick McHenry, the House Financial Services Committee, and Congressman French Hill will go do that. And here's some other perspectives, too. And I have this from... Uh, sources that are around the bank, won't name them, I trust them, I know them, 
but there were significant audit and control deficiencies around signature. Some of this is starting to come to light now in the reporting. So on the audit side, the regulars are saying, hey, send us this information, there's no document. Banks are not supposed to run that way. Banks are quasi-public institutions. Uh, they're checklist-driven, they're rules-driven. Uh, and then the other side is on controls. Uh, now, look, as of yesterday, the federal government was still running Signet. The federal government was running a 24-7 instant settlement network for crypto. The federal government can shut that down whenever they want. They haven't. And it looks like that uh, there were AML issues involved, that accounts were being onboarded without sufficient scrutiny. So I'm, I recommend that we hold judgment. Let's get the hearings. Let's get the transparency. Let's learn more. But I would be cautious about concluding that this was a federal regulatory driven. This was a New York State DFS. So a complex and nuanced picture there. Let me ask this to you, Perry Ann, because you truly are an expert on the process down at Capitol Hill. Based on your read of the political landscape right now, do you think it's likely that we will get hearings into this? Yeah, absolutely. I, the, the investigations are already underway. So the process has already started. We saw just yesterday the House Majority Whip, Tom Emmer, sent a letter to the bank regulators, to the FDIC, uh, probing questions. And now that Republicans are in the majority, they have subpoena authority. So they're collecting information. Uh, so that oversight process has already started. Okay, so access to uh, banking isn't the only issue the crypto, the crypto industry is facing right now in terms of regulatory headwinds. Uh, there's also this ongoing regulatory tussle. We alluded to it earlier. The block says Gary Gensler, the chair of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, suggested all proof-of-stake tokens are, in fact, securities. This would imply Ether is included by that definition. Gensler was responding to reporters who asked about a recent statement from another U.S. regulator. The head of the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, uh, Chair Rostin Benham, uh, said once that he thinks Ether is a commodity. Uh, obviously, this is a, a very big uh, open question right now. Uh, this comes as Ethereum developers announced they've completed the final test before the upcoming Shanghai upgrade. So we're seeing major developments on the Ethereum blockchain, uh, while U.S. developer uh, regulators, excuse me, continue to make opposing claims over the actual nature of what, in fact, proof-of-stake tokens are. If Gensler's view were to prevail, uh, and Ether and other proof-of-stake cryptocurrencies would eventually be de deemed securities, either by the courts or in Congress, what would this mean in practical terms? First to you, Perianne. Well, this would be absolutely devastating for Ethereum and proof of work networks. They've been operating under the assumption that they are commodities for a very long time. This would have massive ramifications, not just for people who are holding Ether. It would have ramifications for every exchange in the United States that's been trading Ether for years. Uh, and, and the whole chain of people and companies connected to this digital asset commodity. And yes, I said commodity. Um, we have seen this uh, incredible game of ping pong between uh, the SEC and the CFTC of it's a security, it's a commodity, it's a security, it's a commodity. They keep going back and forth. These statements have been going on for a number of months now. The, com the commissions themselves don't even agree, which truly highlights the need for Congress to to pass legislation, right. to bring regulatory clarity. But I will tell you, the CFTC um, in 2015 brought Ethereum futures, uh, they allowed futures contracts to come to market. It is already regulated as a commodity and has been so for many, many years. So it, it, it really is an, an unbelievable uh, position that the SEC is putting themselves in. And ultimately, it's not Chairman Gensler that's going to make this decision. It will be the courts. Well, it's really interesting to talk about this uh, because this this very complex nature of the way regulation and law gets done here in the United States. So essentially, uh, you have Congress, which makes laws. Uh, you have federal regulators, which are appointed by the executive branch, uh, but are independent, who then can file suit in the federal courts, as you point out. Uh, and that, of course, is a multi-layered process uh, with an appellate process and ultimately potentially uh, going as high as the Supreme Court. Uh, so it's a very complicated uh, sort of matrix of different regulatory, uh, legislative, and judicial proceedings that we see in order to establish uh, these precedents here in the United States. Probably important to remark that a lot of this challenge stems from the facts that we have 90-year-old securities laws here in the United States that really are the basis for this. And so you have federal regulators trying to interpret those 90-year-old laws in addition to some of the 
case law and precedent set over the years. Uh, and then ultimately, as you point out, these resolutions take place in the federal courts. Talking of which, uh, I wanted to get your take on this as well, uh, Perianne and Rom. Coindesk reports that U.S. lawmakers are working their way through various proposals on crypto oversight. Republican Senator Tom Tillis says Congress is at a very early stage of reviewing which proposals might gather support from both parties. The senator said, quote, this is not going to be a crowd pleaser or an applause line. Uh, Perian, what does that quote mean in your opinion? Uh, what's the latest you've been hearing about those efforts in Congress? Yeah, well, myself and our team at the chamber were on the Hill on uh, a weekly, if not daily basis, talking to the lawmakers who are drafting legislation as we speak. Uh, the, the lawmakers who are in a position of authority to actually move legislation through the legislative process, that's key. Um, in the last Congress, there were over 80 pieces of legislation that were introduced related to digital assets or blockchain technology, getting something passed into law is a massive feat. Uh, so just getting a bill introduced, okay, that's been done, but making, you know, getting something bicameral done through the House, through the Senate, to the President's desk, to signature, that is now what we're talking about. Uh, the staffs of the, the relevant committees, so these are Senate banking, Senate Ag, House Financial Services, House Ag. These are the committees that oversee the SEC and the CFTC, who we meet with regularly, who are working on legislation. The terms they use are we are drafting bicameral, bipartisan legislation. This is a really big shift from the previous Congress, where they weren't really using those types of terms. They were just trying to get proposals out, put stakes in the ground, get markers to move the conversation forward. Now the efforts are, let's get something done. So we are seeing a lot of progress and a lot of sophistication on Capitol Hill, which is an indicator that legislation is coming. Yeah, this is a process you understand very well, Perianne. Ram, any thoughts about uh, the political interactions that we've just discussed? Yes, yeah. So first off, let me circle back to the ETH security questions and issues around that. So first, if the SEC declared ETH security, then what would happen is Coinbase would be forced to delist ETH or litigate the SEC. That's one. Second, the best defense against ETH not being a security is a third prong of the Howey test, namely citing decentralization. The Howey test relies on the managerial of efforts clause to make the case that it's security. But here's another point that it's non-consensus. I really do think the industry needs to approach it this way. We want digital assets and tokens to issue dividends. We want Uniswap to pay fees to the token holders, to remit a dividend to a token holder. And if we do that, then we can wrap capital markets around this. We can value these tokens. They can compound and grow. It means that you can get a digital dollar like USDC that actually pays you interest. That's the vision that we want to advance toward. We want crypto and digital assets to be productive assets. So my suggestion is that we tackle it head on. Instead of saying, no, 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 these aren't securities, lean into policy and say, we want a crypto securities regulation framework. That will take an act of Congress. But saying the CFTC ought to regulate, it's not gonna go anywhere. That will not be an effective strategy because securities laws, although they're not updated for crypto, uh, they work for 90% of the capital markets. The 98% of the capital, they're not gonna change. The Howey test is here to say, the principle-based approach is here to say, a better approach is to say, safe harbor, you know, the guidance that Hester Pierce has provided uh, and create a framework within securities law that makes it permissible to offer tokens with a disclosure framework. Investors benefit from disclosure. You know, Ryan Selkis at Massari and his team are creating a disclosure framework that can allow us to get the equivalent of 10Ks and 10Qs on these protocols and have disclosures of conflicts of interest from inflows and promoters. We need that. That's a part of existing securities laws, by the way, but we don't benefit from that because of the lack of clarity here. Now in Congress, I don't think you get much done, sadly and unfortunately. And the reason why is it's one thing to get a bill drafted, but unless you get Senator Sherrod Brown, who's the head of the Senate Banking Committee, who's a crypto skeptic to lean in and participate, it's just very challenging. Uh, you know, usually it takes a crisis to get some regulation done. We have kind of a mini crisis around stable coins. I think there's a shot on go goal on getting stablecoin regulation, and we, we desperately need that. 
Karan, what do you think about the views that Ram has just articulated? Well, yeah, getting something through Congress is a uh, it, it is a massive feat. Um, he he mentioned some good points of we've got key detractors, particularly in the Senate, who have the majority. So while sophistication is increasing in, in Congress, it, it is still uh, it's still a long way to go. Uh, and is it going to happen this year? It's 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 possible, but I think it's it's also possible it won't happen this year. I guess the real threat here is, you know, you mentioned this idea, both of you, I think this, that it's very difficult to get uh, legislation done when there's not a period of emergency. I mean, ultimately, what the real risk here is that the United States loses its global competitiveness uh, with digital assets and with the new financial uh, and economic ecosystem that's being developed around it. Uh, how long does that sort of take to play out as a thesis? Uh, by the way, I should add that we are seeing sort of leadership uh, in this going on outside of the United States, whether it's in Hong Kong, uh, in continental Europe, or in the UK. Go ahead, Rob, jump in. I'm happy. You, you really touched on a, a, a great point there, Ash, and you're right. Look, China, through their special economic zone of Hong Kong, is trying to relax restrictions around blockchain innovation. And, you know, Russia, China, and India are a different block that can coordinate payments away from the US dollar or the euro dollar regime using blockchain. So you are raising an excellent strategic point um, uh, and the US should be conscious and aware of that. Um, I think that that's one. Second is there's an opportunity for advancing US dollar hegemony. USDC is a way to do that. Uh, I think if you look at DM, which of course is a private blockchain, not public and decentralized like ETH, uh, it almost got approved. Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, had approved it. Uh, there was a warning from the Financial Times that Janet Yellen said no. And that fateful act changed the course of crypto history. Had it been approved, Silvergate would still be here. Silvergate would be a stablecoin issuer. They'd be mm -hmm. collecting a tremendous amount of spread. You would have tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, of people using a stablecoin to transact because Facebook was involved, Lyft was involved, Uber was involved, Amazon was involved. And that experiment, unfortunately, never saw the light of day. Uh, and uh, it's it's extremely unfortunate. You know, if, if Larry Summers was Treasury Secretary, Larry Summers was Treasury Secretary. He was on the board of DCG. He's on the board of Lending Club. He's FinTech Forward and he's a Democrat. You know, you would have had a different outcome. So it's 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 really unfortunate. But I think you're, you're right on the mark that regulators and Congress need to look at the broader you know, strategic picture for the US dollar uh, and uh, the U.S. dollar hegemony. Well, you know, then again, if uh, Larry Summers had been uh, Secretary of Treasury, we probably wouldn't have gotten $1.9 trillion in American rescue plan stimulus uh, on the fiscal side. And we'd be you would have raised interest rates sooner and faster as well, by the way. Larry was early in the call on inflation. Yeah, he sure, he sure was. Hey, everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Uh, Perry Ann, any thoughts about this? It sounds like Rom is leaning uh, in many ways towards stablecoin regulation. Do you think that that uh, is an effective first step for making the kind of changes uh, that you would support? It is a priority for the House Financial Services Committee, the House um, Agriculture Committee as well, uh, and it's kind of yet to be seen if it's a priority for, for for the Senate. So this is this is absolutely where Congress is putting resources in. Um, Ram, you had mentioned earlier uh, that the, the security, these 90-year-old securities laws, they've stood the test of time and that they're here to stay. Uh, I just wanted to make one comment on that. There is another law that I think is here to stay, and that's the 1934 Act, which really builds the structure of the SEC. And the SEC is a disclosure regulator. They are not a merit regulator. They are not in the business of picking winners and losers, yet we are seeing them hold digital assets and particularly Bitcoin to a higher standard uh, and have uh, th they've acted outside of their statutory mandate as a disclosure regulator and as a merit regulator. And that's another piece that we believe the, the Congress needs to provide um, oversight on. That piece on U.S. competitiveness is, is absolutely key as well. In 2019, 
Uh, we issued a national action plan for blockchain, urging the administration to make digital assets a national priority to ensure that we preserve our dominance globally in this technology, which will also impact our dominance in the financial services and the technology sectors. Uh, yeah. I, I think that's in yeah. serious jeopardy uh, today, and policymakers should prioritize this uh, and, and right the wrong steps that they've made. It's not too late, but if they don't address these issues soon, uh, we could see a massive brain drain that could really set our economy back in a real way. Yes. Well, that's I, very well said on brain drain and global competitiveness, uh, Perianne. I think very important. Uh, Ram, let me ask you this. Uh, one more question, then we have to go to viewer questions here because we've got a lot of them coming in. Uh, we spent a lot of time during this conversation talking about uh, regulatory uh, infrastructure, which is right in uh, Perianne's bailiwick, of course. But I wanted to ask you as a Marcus guy, is there anything else that you're thinking about right now? We have this uh, very uh, sort of uh, ominous uh, European banking crisis question uh, hanging over us, more broadly questions about the regional banking system here in the United States. What else is on your radar screen right now from the capital markets perspective that you think may ultimately, potentially at least, have a cryptocurrency impact? Yeah, great, great question. Let me double back briefly on the SEC. So far. This is a great conversation. I really enjoy this very much, by the way. It's absurd that the SEC hasn't updated the interpretive guidance. It's been four years. So you have firms like Kraken get a $30 million fine, because they see someone else doing staking, they do it responsibly. That's absurd. It's got to change. I'm, I'm, I take a this is, the, this is the idea of, uh, of the so-called regulation through enforcement that you're referencing. Correct. Correct. And, uh, you know, that's got to stop. There's no reason why we don't have clear interpretive guidance. I'm just trying to be pragmatic. When you think about Congress and getting something done, their crypto is a $1 trillion asset class, right? Deposits are $20 trillion. Equity markets, $40 trillion. We're not going to be able to upend the decades of case law built around Howie. So I'm trying to be pragmatic. It does take congressional intervention, though, and it does require leading with a positive vision about crypto. Let's talk about Amazon embracing NFTs and Nike embracing NFTs and JP Morgan and JPM coin. The more we can reference other trusted brands that have a constituency that pay tax dollars, then Congress can relate to it. Congress looks at crypto and they see a speculative casino led by Coinbase and a few others. We need to talk about how you can improve the ordinary lives of Americans by reducing payment settlement costs or cross-border remittances or how 2008 could have been avoided if you had transparency and instant settlement on chain. That's the story we need to tell to get public awareness in Congress here. Right now we're on defense, defending everything that's blowing up with this alphabet soup of companies, right? Now, to your point on what I'm looking for capital markets, I'm looking at Anchorage, I'm looking at uh, Cowan, uh, and Cross River, and here's why. Anchorage is the only national chartered bank that can custody crypto. And that's very important because we need more chartered banks that can custody crypto to diversify this mission critical infrastructure. You know, we want banks to engage with crypto so that we can improve the experiences we have, whether through our apps or the banking system or strengthen the bank system. So that's, I'm watching that, you know, Anchorage received a consent order from the regulators six months ago uh, from acting uh, OCC head, Michael Sue. That's one. I'm a big believer in Anchorage and their mission to be very clear, rooting for them. Second, Cowan. Cowan was acquired by TD Ameritrade. Cowan is building the first prime brokerage for crypto. We need institutional infrastructure to let real money flow in the category. And uh, it remains to be seen whether Cowan will continue their crypto prime brokerage efforts. Uh, I hope they will. I expect they will. They, um, but we really need to see that happen. The third is Cross River, right? So one of the winners of this, you know, I kind of have mixed feelings about it, is you've seen the demise of Signature Silvergate uh, and uh, SVB. And Cross River is now running the fiat ramp for USDC and Coinbase. I used to work there. I, I built the crypto business as an executive at, at Cross River. But uh, now all, you know, Cross River is not a GSIB. Cross River is not a systematically important financial institution. So there's a lot riding on Cross River's shoulders. But I can tell you they're very profitable. Their financial statements are public. I feel good about that management team. feel more than good about that. But those are the three institutions I'm, I'm looking for. 
All right. Great perspective. Uh, okay, viewers on YouTube, remember to sign up for our website. Go to realvision.com forward slash crypto to sign up for free. Uh, let's look at some of the questions coming into us right now. Uh, first one uh, from Ralph. This one's to you, Ram. Uh, how could Ron believe NYDFS is anti-crypto when they have a license structure for crypto companies and authorized Gemini Trust, Circle, NYDIG, and Coinbase, among others? Could it be that NYDFS intervened in signature at the behest of federal authorities? The, as a matter of fact, this is not for debate, the New York DFS initiated the receivership process. As a matter of fact, that's not up for debate. That's one. It was a state regulator. So the fact that the New York DFS exists is a signal that the New York state policy makers want to regulate crypto. That's it, right? So yes, look, the, this is not really a debate. I think I'm sure Perion has a similar view. The New York DFS has a green list of tokens that are permitted. They have their own license re licensing regime that must be met in addition with federal regulation. The New York DFS uh, it really needs to you know, rethink its approach to crypto policy. Perianne, since Ron mentioned, do you have any thoughts? Well, definitely can't uh, defend the New York DFS as a pro-crypto uh, regulator or New, New York as a, a pro-crypto state. I, I actually think they're probably the most anti-crypto state in the country. Uh, the bit license was actually introduced two days before we opened our doors at the Chamber of Digital Commerce over nine years ago. This was a huge project that we drove. It was the first policy project that we worked on at the chamber. The bit license was incredibly controversial. Uh, the industry fought back against it hard. Uh, and this really um, pushed the industry back in terms of getting this duplicative licensing regime in the state of New York. And super unfortunately, there's now another a, a handful of other states that are looking to follow New York and create a licensing regime that's incredibly burdensome for companies to be able to uh, get licensed under. Also, just last year, New York officially became the first state in the country to ban a type of uh, digital asset infrastructure. They have banned uh, a certain type of proof of work mining. This was pushed by climate activists, uh, was uh, met with a ton of debate and controversy from the industry. New York has an awful track record when it comes to digital assets. I do want to clarify briefly, you're right, Perion. It's the existence of the bit license, not the existence of the New York State DFS that shows their approach to crypto. I agree with everything you said. Okay, one more question from Ralph, this time for Perianne. Uh, Perianne, what are the top three issues your organization will be focusing on? Great question, Ralph. We are focused on getting a spot Bitcoin ETF to market. This is an issue that I'm uh, personally passionate about. Uh, because it is a very prime example of the SEC operating outside of their statutory mandate from a uh, disclosure regulator to a merit regulator. And then it also just really exposes the double speak from policymakers. You see policymakers saying we need better investor protections for digital asset investors. We need better consumer protections for retail investors. This is how you get there. But yet they have blocked every attempt over a decade to bring a spot ETF to market. So that's one. Two is addressing these the legislation. There is significant efforts on Capitol Hill to introduce new legislation. Some, some is good, some is bad, some is kind of net negative, but we work as a resource to policymakers, have a massive presence on Capitol Hill to help guide them to get the best possible outcomes uh, in Congress. And then third, we are advocating for U.S. competitiveness. Um, I mentioned earlier, we introduced a national action plan for blockchain. We're working with the administration as well as the many, many agencies uh, that are involved in the oversight of digital assets to ensure that the U.S. can lead in this space. Unfortunately, we have a lot of work to do there, but it's something we are fighting for. All right, I want you to do final thoughts, key takeaways for our audience from both of you. Uh, we started with you, Ron. Let's start with you this time, Perianne. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with. 
Key takeaways, uh, if the U.S. doesn't get this right, it's going somewhere else. Their digital assets aren't going anywhere. Innovation uh, is moving forward. Technological progress is not something that can be uh, shut out. Uh, the big question is, is it going to happen here or is it going to happen somewhere else? Uh, and again, that's the issue I've dedicated my career to fighting for because it is worth the fight, uh, but we've got a lot of work to do. Great point. Brilliantly said. One I completely agree with and definitely something uh, that should be food for thought for all of us. Rum, final thoughts, key takeaways. Well, I concur with the prior remark. Crypto needs better storytelling. Crypto is playing whack-a-mole. It's on defense from the myriad institutions having challenges. What crypto needs to do is advance a positive vision for crypto that Im improves the financial well-being of consumers and investors that Congress can relate to, because ultimately these issues need to be fixed by Congress. That means telling the story about the brands, talking about reducing inefficiency in the payment networks, talk about strengthening our capital markets through transparent real-time settlement on-chain, and, and ensuring that the U.S. remains the leader in innovation. We end the show on a note of complete agreement, which just goes to show how reasonable all of our positions are. Uh, thank you for coming on the show, Perry and Rom. Pleasure having both of you with us. Great to be here. Uh, that's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with Mark Yusko. A great show tomorrow. Uh, also, make sure to check out realvision.com as well. We have an important two-part series called How to Un-F Your Future. It features some of the most visionary thinkers and investors we know. This week, we're exploring all the solutions with a lineup of true experts like Angus Shillington and Dwight Anderson. Go to realvision.com forward slash UNFK. That's realvision.com forward slash UNFK to get free access. See you tomorrow live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Have a great afternoon, everybody. If we want to change the outcomes for this really screwed up world, where our wages don't go up, where we're being replaced by technology, where governments are massively in debt and we foot the bill via taxes, where we see debasement of assets so we can't afford as many assets as we like. So the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. If we don't like to see the rise of populism based on this broken society because the promises of the future have been broken, let's make our promises to our future selves come right. And that's by unfucking your future. Some of this is going to really f your future in 20 or 30 years time, but we've got time to figure that out because it's unstoppable. Mm -hmm.